have some thoughts to share with you tonight. What's an exhortation? Well, an exhortation is basically what I've learned from the scriptures and what um, is on my heart. So if you remember, um, if you were present at the Good Friday service, you may recall that I gave some brief thoughts on what we believe were the first words spoken by Jesus from the cross, which come from Luke 23, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And during that time, we noted that these words which Jesus spoke were really a remarkable fulfillment of Jesus' own command that has been given to us, which comes from Luke chapter 6 and verse 27. But I say to you, who here love your enemies, do good to those that hate you, bless those who curse you, and pray for those who abuse you. And so I want to expand a little bit tonight on that one verse and command of Jesus. Because since the Friday evening service, the, the Good Friday service, I'd been given some thought to these things. So this is quite a challenging instruction. Um, and I want to read a passage from Luke. If you want to turn in your Bible to um, page 1025, 1025, we're going to read this passage from Luke in chapter 6, beginning in verse 27 to, through verse 36. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also, and from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you, and from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good, and lend expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. In this last verse, be merciful, even as your Father is merciful, really could be considered a summary statement of this whole, of the whole, all of, all of the Beatitudes. Um, as it draws attention to all that Jesus is, has previously said concerning how we are to treat our enemies. If you, are one, uh, if you like the Table Talk magazine, I think it was the March edition, if I'm correct, that had some wonderful articles on the Beatitudes, and I would encourage you to, to take a look at those. So what does being merciful actually look like? Well, Jesus explains this in these details of these, of these verses. And, of course, our wise and faithful Savior doesn't leave us to figure this out for ourselves. He gives us these specific instructions on what it means to imitate our, our Savior. And I'm not going to speak to all of these uh, instructions, but I just want to focus on this one thought 
love your enemies. This verse uh, in, um, verse, in, in verse 27. So I, I suspect you and maybe <laughs> and me for sure and maybe you as well find that this is quite challenging. Um, I prefer to show love to those that love me. Um, I'd rather um, not show love to those who necessarily don't deserve it. And while I, can, I know I can do a much better job at this, and this is something that's come from this, this study, I know I could do a much better job at actually um, sharing the gospel with people, with my acquaintances outside of church, with people that I interact with day in, day out. I find that much easier um, than, than loving an enemy. So who, who, would, who would be considered our enemies? Well, it may not be um, people that you're acquainted with, or you may not think of it, them as your enemies. But if you look at Scripture, besides, besides Satan, Scripture names many other names for, for, for enemies of God. Other words that you use for enemy in the Bible are adversary or foe. Any person who disobe- disobeys the Lord's command is really declared to be God's enemy. Sin sets us against God. In Paul's letter to Colossians uh, chapter 1, we read, And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. The Apostle Paul referred to unsaved sinners as enemies of God. In Romans chapter 5, verse 10, he says, For while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. So the, so the Bible clearly looks at those who are not in Christ as enemies of God. Now, while our non-Christian friends and acquaintances may not think of themselves as our enemies, from a biblical standpoint, they really are considered enemies of God from a scriptural perspective. But you know, the darkness that is present in our world seems to be getting more hostile. It's hostile to the gospel. The world is hostile to Christ, hostile to the church, hostile to the truth. Even hostility is seen when you try and enter into conversation with somebody about a difference of opinion about certain things. We rightly resent that. There's such wickedness in our society today, legalization of the murder of little babies, the sexual perversion that's all around us, and how the family is being slowly and systematically destroyed. It's sometimes difficult to get our minds around these things and our hearts in the right place because these things are hostile to us. So they're reproaches, reproaches that are primarily directed to God. And when God is dishonored, we feel pain. When God, what God hates, we hate. What God makes angry makes us angry. And we don't like it when Christ is dishonored. We hate it when Christ is demeaned, and we should. And so this is righteous indignation. Um, the Holy Spirit reveals to us what we are to love and what we are to hate as believers in Christ. 
But there is a proper and biblical way to handle these hurts. We are to be like Jesus in that we are to love our enemies and follow his example and leave vengeance to him and him alone. Jesus says, love your enemies. Here's something to think about. The only Bible, you've heard it said, that the only Bible some people will ever read is you. And if this were the only criteria by which people, unbelieving people, people that the Bible considers our enemies were to evaluate our faith, our commitment to Christ, where would we stand? Sadly, I I can say for myself, I don't think I would do a very good job at that. But thankfully, our assurance as believers, nor God's love for us depends upon our ability to live out certain Christian principles. The assurance, of course, of our salvation depends on what Christ has achieved for us on the cross. But we should look at evidence of our salvation and how we live our lives. And here we're called to display a love to others that resembles the love that Jesus demonstrated to us. So, what's, what's, so what is Jesus talking about here? Well, first I want to just mention two things which I don't think that he's talking about. First, I don't think, he, I want, I don't think that Jesus is he's not asking us to have feelings of affection toward our enemies. The love here is dealing with our activity towards them and not how we feel towards them. So love here is a verb. It's not a noun. But this is why it's so difficult. Because it's difficult to love somebody with your actions when you don't necessarily have feelings or affection towards them. What type of love is this? What's the love that Christ demonstrated to us? And you know the word. It's the Greek word agape, as opposed to the other types of love that are talked in the Bible, like brotherly love or erotic love. This is a love that Jesus is using when he's giving us this command to love our enemies. It's the way he expresses his love towards us. It's a love that's not drawn out by any attractiveness of the one being loved, It's a love that is not in response to the merit of the one who is loved. It's the kind of love that God has for us because we know that he loved us, not because there was anything attractive and certainly not because we were perfect. He loved us because he loved us. He didn't wake us up to flee from the wrath to come because he saw something admirable in us. He loved us on account of his grace. This is the kind of love that Jesus is describing here. The other thing that I don't think uh, is, is meant here is that Scripture doesn't ask us to turn a blind eye to sin. Um, this command for us to love our enemies is, is, doesn't contradict texts that regard punishment for criminals, and you can read about those in Exodus. And, of course, sometimes the only way to demonstrate love to an enemy is to put them in a place such as a prison where they will be hindered from doing any further damage or harm and certainly hindered from exposing themselves to greater consequences. 
So what's Jesus talking about here? He's talking about something that I personally fail miserably at, and maybe you feel the same, because apart from his grace, it seems nearly impossible to practice. Anyone can love those that love them. Even sinners do the same. We just read that. We want eye for eye or tooth for tooth. If our enemy takes out one of our eyes, then you do the same. That's justice. But actually, we're not even satisfied with that. We want to take out both of their eyes. We want revenge. But you know what the Bible says. Vengeance is mine. I will repay. That's from Hebrews chapter 10. It's not ours. It belongs to God. God's word not only commands that we do not react with vengeance, but that we be proactive in blessing. So when we've managed to not retaliate, that's good. But we've not yet fully obeyed. His command to love our enemies, it's easy to convince ourselves that ignoring our enemies is the most way, the most we can realistically do to, uh, but our responsibility before the Lord is not, is to respond to wrongdoing with a spirit of generosity, trusting that God will always judge justly, and therefore we do not need to be a judge. First Peter 2, we read, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. So what are some examples in Scripture? Of course, we, the greatest example, of course, is, the, is one loving his enemies is demonstrated by Christ who died on the cross for our sins. Before he saved us, it's clear in Scripture that the Scripture calls us enemies of God. But let's look at 1 Samuel you want to turn there to page 291 in your Bible, I'll probably read a little bit of this. 1 Samuel chapter 24. I know you're familiar with this story. Where David spares Saul's life. Saul's trying to find a way to kill David. Saul's in the wilderness with his men searching for David to kill him. And Saul happens to go into a cave, um, and the Bible says to relieve himself. It happens to be the same cave that David and his men are in. 1 Samuel 24, verse 4, we read, And the men of David said to him, Here is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. Now notice that God didn't tell David to harm Saul or kill Saul. Unlike, I was thinking about this and I thought, unlike what God told David to do to Goliath. So here he says, do to him as it shall seem good to you. Do to him as it shall seem good to you. Then David arose and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe. He said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, 
seeing he is the Lord's anointed. So David persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. And Saul rose up and left the cave and went on his way. And afterward, David also rose and went out of the cave and called after Saul, my lord, the king. And, and when Saul looked behind him, David bowed with his face to the earth and paid homage. And David said to Saul, why do you listen to the words of men who say, behold, David seeks your harm? Behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you today into my hand in the cave. And some told me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not put out my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, see the corner of your robe in my hand. For by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, you may know and see that there is no wrong or treason in my hands. I have not sinned against you, though you hunt my life and take to take it. May the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you. But my hand shall not be against you. And then skip down to verse 16. As soon as David had finished speaking these words to Saul, Saul said, Is this your voice, my son David? And Saul lifted up his voice and wept. He said to David, you are more righteous than I, for you have repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you evil. That's a powerful example. Another example is in Acts chapter 7, the stoning of Stephen. Um, Stephen says, as he is stoned, being stoned, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Now, this was witnessed, and maybe even the Apostle Paul participated in the stoning. Um, we don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us. And I can't imagine that this did not have some impact on Paul. Obviously, two chapters later, on the road to Damascus, Paul is saved. Acts 16, which is on page 1,100. You don't have to turn there. Um, I'll just go over this briefly. Paul and Silas are imprisoned. You know the story. They're stripped of their clothing, beaten with rods, thrown into prison with feet placed in stocks. And what do they do? They're praying and singing hymns at midnight. And you know what happens. A few verses later, Beginning in verse 30, the jailer asks, Sir, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And of course, this wonderful parable that was read earlier, Luke chapter 10, page 1032 of your pew Bible. Beginning in verse 25, And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your strength, and with all of your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you shall live. 
Now, if the guy was smart, he probably would have, should have stopped right there. But he didn't. He wanted to justify himself. And so he goes on and asks, well, who is my neighbor? And then, of course, you know, Jesus tells him the parable of the Good Samaritan. And at the end, he said, which of these three do you think proved to be the neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. And what does Jesus say? You go and do likewise. Love your enemies. Agape is the highest form of love. Not a love of emotion. It's a love of the will. It's not related to any sense of personal fulfillment or personal gain. It's a love that wants to free an enemy from any thought of hate, a love that wants to rescue the enemy from their sin and, by God's grace, wants to see their soul saved. There is no greater love. You know, we, we're never more like Jesus than when we forgive our enemies by showing them loving grace and mercy as it has been shown to us. The whole of salvation is based on the fact that God has forgiven us, his enemies. And the best way we, who are his sheep, can demonstrate that to the outside world is obviously by demonstrating the love that Christ demonstrated to us. And as we heard this morning, we are under obligation. Apostle Paul understood this. In Ephesians chapter 4, he writes, Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. And in chapter 5 of Ephesians, he says, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself for us. Actually, another verse just comes to mind. In Romans chapter, I think it's chapter 13. Um, oh, here it is. Chapter 13, verse 8. Owe no man anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. The Apostle Paul also wrote in Romans chapter 5, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, enemies of God, Christ died for us. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21 to 23, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Jesus is not asking from us something that he has not already demonstrated to us in his humanity. Paul also writes in Romans chapter 12, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will reap burning coals on his head. Now, you can think about this verse in two ways. There's a right way and an inappropriate way, I would say. Um, the burning coals, obviously, in this passage is a metaphor for 
is not a metaphor for revenge. And so, while many of us would be quite content if burning coals would actually land on some of our enemies' heads, obviously that attitude reflects a fallenness in uh, our, our sin nature. The burning coals are ultimately to bring healing rather than hurt. They demonstrate the shame and remorse that an enemy may, by God's grace, experience when this agape love is demonstrated to them despite the hurt that they have inflicted. Instead of giving them the retribution that we think that they deserve or even that they think might be coming to them, we show them this kindness. You know, excommunication may seem harsh, but in reality it is an act of love towards the one who has been put outside the church. On the one hand, while we would not likely consider those who are excommunicated as our personal enemies, those who have been excommunicated would be considered hostile and adversaries to the church. But this is just a reminder for all of us to be praying regularly for those who have been excommunicated due to unrepentant sin. And of course, if you have opportunity, you might uh, encourage them and this is these with a grace and a love and encourage them to repent. And these are the coals, the burning coals that Paul is talking about, ultimately with the hope that they will bring repentance. One final example that I'd like to share. Most of you know what occurred to the Armenian people in 1915 when the Armenians were systematically and subjectively the subjects of genocide of the Ottoman Turkish uh, Empire. One and a half million Armenians were massacred in an attempt to extinguish Christianity from that nation. Fewer than 400,000 Armenians remained. And when our daughter, Lara, spent um, time there a few years ago, she's there now, but she was there a few years ago spending and spent about seven or eight months there working with Young Life, uh, the church that she was worshiping in, the evangelical church that she, church that she was worshiping in, um, she befriended a pastor there. Um, and some of you may have heard of us talking about Craig Simonian. Craig was a pastor here in the States um, a number of years ago. He felt called to um, be involved in a ministry that God had led him to uh, start. Um, and and and. Craig and his wife, Joyce, have since become very dear friends of, of Debbie and I. Um, Craig's family actually came from the same small village in Turkey where, where my family's roots came from. But a few years ago, he felt called to return to Armenia, and he began a ministry called the Armenian-Turkish Peace Initiative. He began by spending time in the evangelical churches in Turkey and getting to and befriending the pastors there. And through this uh, initiative, there have been thousands of Turkish and Armenian believers who have been weighted down by the history of hatred because of this genocide in 1915 that have been reconciled. Last year, several of these Turkish pastors came to ask forgiveness 
for their people's role in the genocide by visiting the, uh, the Armenian Genocide Memorial in, in, in the capital. Where deep wounds have remained for many years, there is a wall coming down. The great measure of our faith, then, is love, a love that we have received in such an abundance, agape, unconditional, sacrificial, sacrificial love, because it's an expression of the character of Christ and all that he has done for us. As we heard this morning in Pastor Trefskar's message, we are under an obligation. May God grant us his grace in fulfilling this command that he has given to us. Let us pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that it reaches our hearts. And yet I would confess that some of the things that you are asking us to do are challenging, but we know by your grace uh, we can accomplish this. Thank you, Father, for uh, this opportunity, and I pray now, Lord, that as we leave this place, uh, these words would be in our minds and in our hearts as we go about uh, the week that's before us. Thank you now, Father. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.